Welcome to this week's edition of the NinersNation.com Better Rivals Podcast. My name is Oscar. My name is David. And this week, we're coming at you with a draft recap. We're going to do everyone and uh, never their mother, actually. Uh, and we're going to recap everyone that we've drafted so far. Lots of things happened first draft. Uh, and generally speaking, uh, there were good things. Good things were being said about John Lynch. My favorite being the tweet from uh, Mike Freeman that was like, some GM texted me and said, I thought GM, uh, I thought John Lynch would suck. He doesn't. <laughs> His reaction was so great to that. Like, oh, I'm glad I don't suck. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> of course you would say that, John Lynch, because that's that's what you do. Yeah, so it's it's been a hell of a weekend. We had drunk prospecting on Thursday night, uh, somewhat of a recovery on Friday night. Uh, and then Saturday was just all day tweeting and film watching and doing all manner of, of different things. So this we're going to spend the next... Probably hour and 10, hour and 15, breaking down each of the prospects. We've watched film on almost all of them. Um, we kind of less film the less uh, the farther down they got uh, in the less notable case of Trent Taylor. Uh, and then uh, well, let's start, though, with the trades. Because the trades really are where it all started. Day one, Niners moved out of the second spot to move to the third spot. Uh, and, and basically, Ryan Pace, the, the anatomy of the trade was John Lynch saying that Ryan Pace kind of reached out and said, hey, we pick close to each other. We know each other from you know your time at Fox. Let's, uh, let's kind of elbow, elbow, see if we can help each other out during the draft. And then all of a sudden, uh, Prague helped work some magic, and the Niners ended up with probably the, one of the best trades of the entire day. Yeah, it was insane. I mean, we got to kind of react to this live, you know, doing drunk prospecting. But I think it's even now that we have kind of the, the full details of the the entire draft and kind of seeing the way that they were able to maneuver with other trades. Like, I think it looks even more impressive now. I mean, basically, so you're moving down one spot from number two to number three, you're picking up a top pick in the third round, another pick in the fourth round, and then next year's third. And so then if you look at what they did with those picks, right, you took the 67th overall pick in the third round and you traded that to new Orleans and you pick up now a 2018 second. And then you use that pick in the fourth round, 111, to move up three spots and grab Reuben Foster at the end of the first. So you've basically, to move down one spot at the top of the first round and basically select the guy that you were almost certainly going to take anyway at number two, you were able to turn that into a throwaway pick to go grab Reuben Foster and two more picks in the top 100 of next year's draft. So now you're at a spot where you have five selections right now in the top 100 picks of the 2018 draft, um, which is, is again, with the amount of players, you know, we've talked about this ad nauseum at this point, like that they need a lot of players and, and having those sort of premium selections available that, uh, to them next year is just awesome. And I wouldn't even say that the, that the pick to go back up and get Foster was, was a throwaway pick. I think that's, that's the ammunition that you need in order to make a move like that. And what that move allowed us to do is it allowed us to secure the best linebacker in the draft and someone that we're going to get to here in a minute, but that is, is an absolute joy to watch on film. So I think, I think the question really is, why would the Bears make this trade? I mean, they paid Mike Glennon a, a three-year, $45 million, yield, $45 million deal, but really it's an $18 million deal with some options in there. If you have a feeling that you're going to go after you know Mitchell, Mitsubishi, Trubisky, then why, why wouldn't you just pay like a journeyman quarterback, like, I don't know, Brian Hoyer or something like that, who was on your roster already, or even a Matt Barkley, 
pay them, you know, four or five, six million dollars and then go and draft your quarterback. Why would you invest so much money in Glennon and then go and say, well, I'm going to go ahead and, and make this quarterback pick and not even tell my head coach about it? Because that's apparently Ryan Pace's brilliant strategy is to not tell anyone that, that he was going to do this, including his head coach. Um, well, considering, you know, John Fox's comments as, as to, you know, how he was going to look for, for ways to handle his new franchise quarterback, he uh, requested advice from Jeff Fisher. So yep. saw I mean, that. that that gives you a little bit into uh, their, their line of thinking here. I mean, I don't know. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, you know, I, I think if he's your guy and we talked about this as it related to the Niners, right, in, in terms of if if you feel like if you feel strongly about it, you can understand the decision to take someone at two. So looking at this from the Bears perspective, right, if if you felt like Trubisky was your guy, if he had a much higher grade than the other quarterbacks on your board and and he was really the one uh, that, that you felt like could be the face of your franchise. And then you were also worried about other teams potentially trading up to the number two pick, which, you know, obviously, depending on who you want to believe there, that may or may not have been happening. Um, you can understand it a little bit, but I mean, yeah, I think when you, you, you kind of take a step back, look at it from both sides, it seems pretty strange because again, we talked about what the 49ers were able to turn that hall into. Um, and, and basically if they didn't do that, right, what are they stuck with? They're stuck with probably taking Solomon Thomas at number two, and then maybe they get Ruben Foster at 34. We don't know, or actually no, we know that he would have been gone the next pick. So, are they giving up another pick that they was their own pick, you know, that they would have had. So they have one less selection now to go up and get him still at 31 or how does that all work out? You know, they're in a much worse overall situation without that trade. Whereas the bears, if they don't make the trade, they sit at three and they probably just take Mitchell Trubisky at three without giving up all that stuff. So, um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, uh, it's strange. I mean, the only thing that you can try to do to justify it from their side is again, he's your guy felt strongly about it. You thought there was a strong chance that somebody else was going to go up and get him. You, you pull the trigger, I guess. And the, the question then becomes, okay, so what, what are the rumblings in the NFL about who was going to go and get, uh, Mitchell, whether it was going to be the, the Browns that traded up, whether it was going to be the jets and there's, you know, on Twitter, you've got people confirming the jets weren't going to trade up. No one said really said much about Cleveland. And Charles Robinson tweeted out that, that really the bears were bidding against themselves. And if that's the case, then John Lynch has basically one of the best poker faces that we've seen in quite some time because he basically bluffed the Bears into giving up uh, a pretty good amount in order to, to, to get their, their quarterback, supposedly, of the future. And I think the, the thing that will seal the deal in terms of whether or not this was tilted towards the 49ers' favor or the Bears' favor is noted Bears fan Robert Mays, who does the Ringer podcast. He's a Bears fan. And he had a really interesting reaction after day one that it just it I think just hearing the emotion in his voice will let you know exactly how this trade, how he thought this trade went for the Bears. So here's Robert Mays on the Ringer podcast recapping on their week one recap episode. It's unbelievable. And it's not even just that they drafted Trubisky. I mean, that's one thing where I feel like. There's no plan in place whatsoever. But the fact that they gave up their third and fourth round picks this year, this is not a team that's one Mitchell Trubisky away from being a contender. It's just everything about it drives me fucking insane. Oh, I'm sorry. It's just been a really rough hour or two hours or four hours. Yeah, he's uh, 
He's not happy. He's really, really not happy. God, ah, oh, man, I, I love Robert. Uh, it, it's and I, God, you can just feel like we. How many times have we been there over the last yeah. few years, and just yeah. like that absolute despair and knowing that uh, what just happened was was such a terrible thing for your team, and, and yeah, yes. it's. Uh, it's, it's we know the very difficult to justify uh, and, and it sucks if you're a Bears fan and that happened. And, and again, if maybe if Trubisky exceeds everybody's expectations and he does become a franchise guy, um, you you'll look back on that a little bit more fondly. But it's it's really hard to see all that coming together right now. And, and knowing using the information we have at hand right now, it's hard to feel good about that. So we know that the trade right now rates out as kind of even if you're using the Jimmy uh, the Jimmy Johnson trade value chart. But we know the 49ers don't use that chart. Prague Marate has created his own version of that chart for the 49ers. And it seems like on any other metric, that trade very much skews towards the 49ers. But that wasn't even though we opened up with a bang, that wasn't the only trade of the day. I think John Lynch made six trades over the course of the weekend. And one of the themes I thought was, that was interesting was the just the overall value that we received for most of the trades because by and large the trades ended up netting out positively for the 49ers. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting when you look at the overall value that you get, right? Because you can kind of look at each individual one and and especially when you're making that number, you know, that high number of trades, um you're going to have some like the the one at the top where it, it certainly skews in your favor and then you probably have some other ones where you don't quite get the the value but when you put kind of everything together in one pool and look at okay this were these were the picks that we we got in return these were what we gave away and and how does that total value kind of come together when you use uh Chase Stewart's draft value chart which is available on on footballperspective.com which is one that we've used in the past to kind of evaluate these trades and and I think is uh, you know, a little bit better in terms of reflecting the actual value that you're getting with these picks. Um, and, and so when I kind of put everything together in that calculator, basically the net value of points that the 49ers received was was about 10 and a half points of, of value on this chart. And so to put that in perspective, basically what they gave up was 64.1 points. They received 74.6 points. So you do some quick math there, basically got 116 cents on the dollar um, in, in terms of the six trades there combined. And when you you look at the value of that 10.5 on his chart, that's roughly equivalent to about the 44th overall pick. So you say that it, when all was said and done, the 49ers basically generated the value of a high second round pick with what they got out of those those trades. And I think that that overall metric is a really good way of looking at it. But to me, what was interesting was just the way that they were able to basically create their, create moves where they can move up and get people, but never really give anything away. You think of moving up to get Ruben Foster, and it took a pick that they acquired in that trade down with Chicago. They moved up to pick uh, a couple of other players. They moved back into, of course, the, the I think the third round, yeah. uh, and they moved up in the fourth round. And in almost every instance, the pick that they used to move up was a pick that was either made available to them via a trade or made uh, that round ease, made the pick in that round dispensable because they had another pick in that same round in the same year. So uh, overall, you were able to move around the board, not really give up anything of true value. And at the end of the weekend, you came away with the same number of picks that you had originally, I think, which was 10. 
but you got probably positions that or you were able to draft at a higher position and you netted i think two or three extra picks next year uh and, and so overall it's it's a fantastic way to move around the board and it's exactly what you should do yeah i think one thing i would i would ask you is so i think we we both agree right that obviously the the, the trade at the top from two to three is, is pretty much uh universally applauded uh, and everybody kind of loves that one and, and i think we agree that the overall value that they got from the six trades as a whole was very good um was was there any one individual trade that you just kind of took a little bit more issue with that you didn't really uh like that you weren't as big of a fan of so i and we'll talk about it a little bit we won't because he's in the everyone else section but it's the the trade for bibs um that's a that's a future kind of it, it seems to me like it's a, I mean a fourth rounder you know that like it, it's it, it's not necessarily you know so valuable like for second or third round pick but this is a guy that that I don't know they must have seen something but that that one seemed a little weird to me um, and, and the other one I think was the trade up for uh, we traded up to get I think Joe Williams and then we also traded up to get um, Sunshine uh, <laughs> I'm just gonna keep thinking of him as Beadhead now. Um, <laughs> no, beat beat hard, beat hard. That's what it is. Uh, I still, I still only see Chad Kroger. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, but I, I think those are the only ones where we traded up and none of them seemed, um, ridiculous. None of them seemed like they were, you know, kind of out of bounds or, or, or very, very weird. Um, I, I didn't think that anything really jumped out as, as like, oh my God, I can't believe they did that. It just seems weird. Yeah. They, they had, they had targets on some of these guys. They thought they could do some good things in the system and, and you went out and, and you got them. And, and I think that to me that that makes sense. You kind of, you group people and this is what Bill Belichick does a lot too, is he'll have groups of players and he's like, I'm okay with getting a player from this group. Um, and, and so if like, if they're, if they're in that group and you want to go get them, then, you know, you go get them. Yeah. I, I think the bibs one makes a little bit of sense. The one that kind of redeems that for me is, the fact that you get a fifth rounder here and that fifth rounder turned into to Trent Taylor, who I think is a pretty good player that we're obviously going to talk about here in a minute. But I think that one's OK. I think a lot of people were upset about the idea of trading out of 67 uh, for the for the second round pick next year. And yeah. obviously how good that, you know, ends up being kind of depends on how New Orleans does. You know, if they're shitty and you get a high second round pick, I think that's going to be great. And you, and you love the, the outcome there. If they're a little bit better and you're only end up, you know, moving up a few spots, you know, maybe five, 10 spots in, in overall pick, uh, you don't love it as much because of the the depth of this draft, you know, this particular draft, like right in that area and in, in, in the second, third round. So um, that's maybe the one that I would point to. But I still again, I like the idea of of having um, five picks in the top 100 next year you know for where this team is at that's that's also more ammunition you know if you need to go, go get up and get a quarterback yeah like yep. um so that to me is why i don't that hate sense. that that yeah. move with with new orleans is because you need ammo one way or the other whether or not you're trying to trade for cousins whether or not you're trying to move up to get a quarterback in a class that is uh, initially projected to be better than this class overall and i would have been happy with drafting someone like akella witherspoon in the second round yeah. And we got him in the third. So if you would have told if we wouldn't have gotten someone like Akello and, and you tell me like, oh, well, you could have had him at 67. That's where I'm like, oh, OK, maybe. But the pick we got at the top of the third, I think, was just as good as keeping that pick. And so that's why I think the way it all shook out, it, it, I thought it was a fantastic way to, to handle the draft because you probably got a player you were targeting anyway. 
and you still got that that second rounder in 2018. I think it's great. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you don't you don't know that Akello is going to go, you know, or, or whether yeah. he's going to go right in that range. But I think, yeah, if all of a sudden, like from the outside, if if uh, you see him go like five picks later, right? Um, I, I think that you look back on that one is like, oh, that's a little frustrating. I think I would have liked to have that one. But, yeah. Um, yeah, it, it seemed to to at least all fall where they needed it to fall. Well, let's get into the players then. And, and we've really broken the players into buckets, into groups, if you will. And the first group is going to be players that we think are going to make um, or have an opportunity to make an impact right away. This is a talent-starved roster, so there's going to be a lot of people in that bucket. But there, we, we've watched film on just about everyone and so we'll be able to give you the typical breakdown that we do for these draft breakdowns, which is where we think the player wins, where they lose, and where they fit in this system or this scheme. Uh, and then we're, we have a bucket of players where we've got kind of the everyone else. And these are players that are we don't think are going to make necessarily a huge impact right away, or they're developmental people, admittedly. And you know we're, we're going to give you a couple of notes on them, but we're not players. They're not players that we're necessarily expecting a lot out of uh, right away or initially. And then we'll talk about some final takeaways. So with that, let's get into a condensed version of our sober pro- uh, prospecting <laughs> of Solomon Thomas. We spent probably an hour and a half breaking down uh, two or three of his games on drunk prospecting. So if you want to see some of the, the in-depth show your work, uh, as well as ridiculous jackets uh, and David and I getting progressively drunk, you can definitely catch that on YouTube. But here is the condensed version, right? So Solomon Thomas, Stanford, round one, pick three. Uh, first off, David, let's start with where he wins. I think it's it's pretty obvious when you you know put his tape on that he's a very good athlete, right? I think that's something that jumps out to you um, very quickly, and and we kind of knew that right from even just from the testing. I mean, you look at um, we we love to reference Spark as kind of a measure of overall athleticism. He was a sixth ranked edge player by Spark, was in the ninety fourth percentile, and and I think it's important to note there too that that ninety fourth percentile is among all NFL players at the position. That's not just in this draft class, so. Uh, he is is a a top end athlete at, at, at that position, um, and then force players, which is you know something that Justice Mosqueda does, also kind of combines you know some various measurables from the combine to to really get a projection for some of these edge players, these pass rushers. Um, he was one of only two force players that he had with first round grades on him, um, and, and kind of compared him athletically to somebody like Justin Houston. So I think you see that show up on tape right away. And, and it's, it's really evident kind of with that burst off the ball. I mean, he's just consistently the first one off the ball, you know, when you watch that Stanford D line and he, a lot of times is, you know, engaging the offensive lineman is some guys are still kind of coming up out of their stance. So that the, the explosiveness there I think is, is very evident. Um, and then he kind of transitions that to, you know, good leverage, right? So you come out, you, you fire off the ball explosively, and then you have that low pad level, and that allows you to play with good leverage um, and, and really kind of control offensive linemen, especially when he's in, in more one-on-one situations is where you really see that. He can kind of get his hands into the chest of the tackle and, and control that guy um, and, and really play with good leverage. So I think those are some of the things that you see jump out immediately um i also liked his hand usage i mean we talked about uh this quite a bit i would i would definitely encourage you the the solomon thomas drunk prospecting was a little bit less drunk than the reuben foster um so i think that we probably got to some more uh valuable stuff to take away from there but yeah i think you you saw some some pretty solid hand usage i mean everybody um from a defensive line standpoint coming out of college into the nfl that's always something that they need to improve very few guys uh i I think are, are very refined there so 
Uh, you're always looking for improvement there, but I think among college players, you saw some good hand usage from Solomon Thomas as well. One of the the key kind of phrases that you'll hear sometimes is hands above eyes. That's how you can kind of tell if a defender is playing with appropriate leverage because they're, they're, you know, it's exactly what it sounds like. Their hands are above their eyes. So that means that their head, chest, and butt is kind of sunk. Their hands are up and they're under uh, the offensive player. And Solomon Thomas does that quite a bit. He's got, um, you talked a little bit, David, about his, about his stubby arms potentially being a problem, right? The knock you hear on him is he doesn't have the appropriate length. But in talking about his hand and his hand usage and his leverage, he was able to one-arm guys pretty well. He was able to kind of extend one arm and engage and kind of punch. And that prevented the offensive lineman from getting his hands on Solomon Thomas. So he even knows how to adjust for the, la- for the fact that his arms aren't as long as perhaps he would like at the position. Uh, and that shows up on tape as well as his ability to, to kind of one-arm the, the tackles and make sure that they can't get into his chest and that he's playing with the appropriate leverage. Yeah, I mean, idea there is is one one arm's longer than two, right? It doesn't really, um, you know, to a reasonable extent, doesn't matter how long your arms are. If you're one arming a guy out there on the edge, um, I don't care how long that tackle's arms are, he's not getting to you, right? He he just can't reach the the, the kind of core of your body there and, and be able to to really move you. So um, that's something, yeah, that, again, that you see from him pretty consistently and, and see him play uh, with, with pretty good leverage there again and, and being able to control those guys. I think when you move the the thing with the with if we're going to talk about any sort of uh, body measurement, uh, the the thing that you probably don't like as much uh, is is the hand size. So I think when you transition to where he loses at, right, um, a lot of it is is finishing. And, you know, especially this showed up in, in 2016. Uh, dude is in position to make a ton of plays like he's he's always there in the backfield, like he's able to kind of penetrate and make stuff happen uh, in, in kind of leverage his gap and do all the things that you want in the first half, you know, three quarters at the snap. And then there are missed tackles and there are, there are missed sack opportunities, right? So if we look at just missed tackles, that's really only going to show up in the run game, nine missed tackles there. Um, and then I would say in the games that I watch, I think I watched like eight cutups of him and there were probably another handful of sacks that, that he could have had if he was just able to kind of finish those plays um, and so this was something that Stephen White of SB Nation brought up in terms of the hand size thing, which was uh, this was kind of before the combine and, and before we really got some of those measurables. And, uh, you know, he talks about in his his column on Thomas texting a friend of his and saying that he you know thinks that Thomas basically either has really small hands or really weak hands uh, was kind of the, go- the comment there. And so um, sure enough, when you got to the combine and we got all those measurements, his hands did end up being a little bit smaller compared to what you would uh, expected the position. And I think that's where you see it show up on tape, right? Cause it doesn't matter if it's just measurement doesn't affect how he plays. Um, but, but you do see it there where you're like, man, it looks like he had a hold of that guy and, and just couldn't really hang on and finish the play. Well, we've, uh, we've started a campaign to send him, uh, like a grip master hand strengtheners basically <laughs> is, is what we're going to try and collect money. Yeah. Absolutely. To try and get him some, some, some of those. Cause it, yeah, I mean, it shows up his hand size. You mentioned his hand size being a little smaller than most, his hand size is in the 14th percentile for compared to other edge players based on, on mock draftable. And I think in that article, Stephen White says that it, at the combine, it would have been like the third or fourth smallest set of hands uh, that that would have had there at the edge that year. So, I mean, it, it's not like his hands are a little undersized. It's not like this is an Alex Smith type of thing. It's like he's got little hands. He's got tiny baby hands. And, sure. and that maybe not and it does Trumpian hands, but they're they're not large. 
Correct. And, and the thing is, and, and the worrisome is, is that it does show up on tape. You do see him get a hand on a quarterback. It happened to Mitch Trubisky. He got a hand on him, able to get out. Get a hand on a running back, able to get out. Um, whereas if you're able to have a, a larger hand and, and grip that jersey and hold on for dear life, you're, you're less likely to uh, to let that guy slip out of your grasp. So uh, that definitely is is a concern, I think, when you look at him finishing plays and, and missing tackles. Uh, he had nine missed tackles in 2016. But then you also look at his strength at the point of attack. The, David, you tweeted out some some film cutups of him basically not really succeeding much whenever he was double teamed. Uh, and he'll get washed out of plays by double teams and combo blocks. And this is why you you think of someone at the three technique. And if he is going to play the three technique when we're thinking of his projection, that sometimes is a position that will get double teamed with the center and guard. And so you're thinking of someone who's got a hold up at the point of attack. And it's not something that he was able to do consistently in college. Yeah, I don't think I saw a single snap of him in those those cutups that I watched of him kind of successfully taking on a double team like it was pretty consistently him getting moved off the ball, you know, getting moved several yards off the line of scrimmage or getting kind of collapsed inside. Um, It was really, you know, again, this is this shows up and you say point of attack. That's when the play is coming your way. Right. That's what you mean by point of attack. The run is hitting in your gap or kind of in your area. And so it is important for you to be able to kind of, uh, you know, press against that double team and limit the amount of space that the running back has to get through. Uh, and, and you just didn't see it from him. So that is something that gives you, I think, some pause about how well he's going to hold up in, you know, base situations and rundowns on the inside. Um, and then I think you even saw it every once in a while in some one-on-one blocks. I mean, it was far less frequently uh, in one-on-one situations. I mean, usually he was able to, you could really kind of see the strength there and in being able to control those blockers one-on-one. But there were times where you get a guy kind of coming on a down block, had a good angle on him. Um, and was able to, again, kind of collapse him inside and open up some space for the back to go right at him. So the good thing in, in uh, I guess, well, let's, well, we'll transition about fit. I think there's, there's uh, something to do with his fit there that's going to hopefully make that a little bit less of an issue. But the other thing kind of wrapping up where he loses, and, you know, I'm always a little up and down as to how I feel about this and how much weight I want to put into it. But you did see some inconsistent effort. Um, you know, again, this was something that Stephen White and, didn't point out originally, if you're unfamiliar with Stephen White, he's a former NFL defensive lineman. So uh, certainly when he, when he's evaluating these guys, you want to put some stock into to things that he's calling out. And that was, you know, another thing that he brought up is is the effort and, and not always showing up. And some of the clips that he showed, you know, was were not good. Um, you know, him kind of almost walking around mid play. Uh, and that's then, the one that got me. That's the, it was yeah, a play versus was UCLA like, in the uh, third quarter where the running back is not down. And the running back is in front of Solomon Thomas. And Solomon Thomas is, I mean, with his athleticism, he's like a half step and a jump away from nailing this guy. And he just kind of stands there. And he waits for like the other people to kind of go and finish off the play. And you're like, dude, you could have you could have knocked this guy out. Like you like you finish the play. Yeah. And I think when you when you compare that to so that I mean, there was a play that I tweeted out where he basically comes from the backside of the play. From like the opposite half, like middle of the field area, and chases the dude down on the opposite sideline, and just kind of blows him up, right? Like, and and so when you see that sort of effort and that sort of pursuit on some snaps, and then you see him, you know, again, just kind of standing there, not seems a little unsure as to whether he's very interested in getting into that play, and and, uh, it is a little strange. Um, I mean, it's it's weird to say. I, I think you know this was something that I talked about actually recently with with Dan Hatman. 
Um, not as it relates to defensive linemen, but more as to to kind of, you know, some of the other guys in the back end and in DBs. But it was this idea that you are starting to see more coaching staffs um, that are coaching these guys basically when when the plays are kind of away. Right. So if you're a cornerback and, and it's run to the opposite side of the field, they're not as concerned about effort on those plays. Right. You kind of almost want them to save yourself, especially in college, because you're playing so many snaps. Um, and, and, you know, these offenses are on the field going at a crazy pace. And so, uh, if, you know, all the sports science research that they're getting is, is you're seeing some coaching staffs basically be like, all right, you can kind of pump the brakes on the backside of the, some of those plays. But again, some of the times when, when Thomas was doing it, it's right there in the middle of the play. You want to see him finish that stuff. Um, so I think it's something to monitor, you know, I'm not overly concerned with it. I think that's something, um, you know, you, it's not going to make tape. you not want to draft him. Yeah. You, you pull up that tape as, you know, his D line coach now. And, and, and you're like, Hey, this fucking shit's got to go. Right. And, and you, I think that, I mean, that's a very coachable thing, right? It's not like yeah. he just doesn't have the ability to do it. Um, so, so that's something that I, I am not too worried about, but definitely worth mentioning and worth monitoring going forward. So when you think of where he fits in schematically, this was one of the problems with Solomon Thomas was where he projected to. And, I think for the 49ers, it's a pretty clear transition and fit to a Michael Bennett, Leo type role. We talked about his inability to hold up sometimes when he's double teamed at the point of attack. Well, when you're a Leo and you're playing that weak side or open side uh, defensive end, you don't see nearly as many double teams. You don't have to hold up uh, against double teams. And so just simply based on where you align him, you're already kind of taking the thing that he doesn't do all that well and saying, Hey, you don't really have to do it all that much anymore. And that's, and that's a solid, I think way to scheme your player to success. Michael Bennett plays all along the line, primarily plays on that open side, but then he kicks inside on pass rushing downs. And, and this is probably the role that we're going to see Solomon Thomas have here. He made reference to that role himself when he was interviewed post draft as well. Uh, and so this is definitely going to be the role that I think we we've got him in. And it's going to be a role that we need because we don't really have a player like that right now um, other than maybe Aaron Lynch, uh, as long as Aaron Lynch didn't hit up the buffet too much this offseason. Yeah, I, I think um, the thing that that I, that some people had issue with, right, was it is, is very much a projection to him playing predominantly on the edge because um, you didn't see it a ton when he was in uh, in college because, you know, they're playing more of a three four scheme. And so he's usually more in the interior, played a lot of three tech. And then even when he's at more of an end position, it's, it's a three, four end a lot of times, right? It really wasn't, it was only in, in kind of very obvious passing situations, third and long where you saw him kick outside and, and uh, you know, get way outside the tackle there and more of kind of like a nine alignment or something. Um, but even then a lot of times you would see him kind of stunt inside. So they, they didn't give him many opportunities to just kind of pin his ears back and try to rush around the edge. I think you see some movement skills in other areas, right? Like I think there there are times there are plays in the run game, especially where you see the sort of movement that you want to see from that player out on the edge when you're you're trying to kind of beat the tackle and and uh, you know get outside of him and kind of get to the quarterback there. So, but between those sort of plays that you see elsewhere and what we know about him athletically and, and kind of how he tested. I think I'm a little bit more comfortable projecting him to that sort of role as uh, more more so than other people are, I guess. Yeah, I think we've, you've seen a lot of hesitation um, from people covering the 49ers about whether he was really a fit there and, and how much overlap that you get between him and Buckner and Armstead. Um, I, I think he's very clearly the most athletic of those three, the better fit 
uh, to spend some time on the edge. I mean, yeah, he, like you mentioned, he's going to be Michael Bennett. He's going to kick down inside when they go into the sub packages. And I think that's the thing that matters most too. We, we spent a lot of time talking um, this off season about where their people are fitting in this new base defense. But the thing to really hammer home is what they do in sub packages, because that's where you're at 70% of the time uh, in the league. And I think there, those three players are going to be very much assets and they're going to be fine. Um, so I'm not too concerned about that. And when you look at Armstead and Buckner, they split their kind of defensive end and inside tackle splits. Uh, Armstead's kind of truncated because he had his injury, of course, but he played 106 snaps at left defensive end, 38 at right, and 135 snaps inside at defensive tackle. Buckner played 382 snaps at right defensive end and 581 snaps at inside defensive tackle. My guess is that Armstead and Buckner are not going to kick in, um, or only one of them is going to kick inside. Uh, and then you've got Thomas uh, on the inside as well. So definitely projects to the edge. Uh, and uh, and I think it's definitely a, a solid pick. Uh, it's a need pick. And uh, we did it all by trading down one spot and getting what we wanted to do uh, anyway. Yeah, I mean, they're going to be able to play. And even if they're not all three on the field, you know, 100% of the time, together, like that's fine. We talked about yeah. going into it, right? You can Rotation. never have enough players rushing the passer. And on D-line, you want to have a situation where you can go six, seven guys deep and be able to rotate guys out. And so I think, yeah, you're going to see Thomas line up probably everywhere along that D-line with the exception of, uh, you know, kind of at nose or that one technique spot that you're going to see in base. Um, but he's going to play inside. He's going to play on the edge. So is Buckner. So is Armstead. And, and I think the three of them, though, give them a very strong foundation on that D-line. So two things I learned about Solomon Thomas as I was doing research on him this weekend. One, he was a pretty chubby, unathletic kid, supposedly. So he in sixth grade, he couldn't finish a mile. He couldn't run a mile in sixth grade. And when he first started playing football, he, you know, he really got into it and he was a lot bigger than everyone else. And he would hit them really hard. And his friends would act, would ask him not to hit them hard. And so he would, he would like kind of make contact, but then pick them up and lay them on the ground. This was in that SB Nation video, right? That they, that they did on him. Yeah. That was the origin story. Uh, Uh, It was pretty funny. I didn't catch the mile in sixth grade part. I mean, who would have known that uh, me and Solomon Thomas would have went in drastically different directions athletically after sixth grade, you know, like uh, who would have guessed it? That's right. You know, (laughs) who knows? But yeah, I thought those two tidbits were interesting. But uh, I think we get to now our second pick in the first round. Ruben Foster, linebacker out of Alabama. Round one, pick 31. This is the second year in a row we've drafted two players in the first round. uh, And the, the trade effectively jumped in front of New Orleans because they were on the phone with him to draft him 32nd, and we drafted him at 31. If you haven't heard this story yet, uh, a couple of beat writers recorded it when he was being interviewed at the introductory presser. It's really funny. It's a great story about how he's on the phone with with New Orleans and then San Francisco calls and kind of what happens. So definitely go and, and dig that up. Now, where does Reuben Foster win, David? Man, uh, where doesn't he win most of the time is what you want to say. I, I think the thing that to me jumped out first to him uh, when I was watching his tape was was kind of the the play speed, which as we talked about, you know, kind of pulling from that scouting academy foundation. It's really this combination of the athletic ability and how quickly he processes information. And uh, it, it's just kind of insane, like the his ability to to process things instantaneously and kind of just react and go get things like, um, you know, there were, there was a couple of plays there that really stuck out. Like there was one where he's, 
effectively blitzing. He's rushing the passer. He's on a stunt. He's kind of coming across the center's face, and he's engaged in this block with the center. And then all of a sudden, he sees the back kind of, you know, he's looking through over the shoulder of the center, sees the back come through, trying to release out on a screen, and just immediately gets his hand on the back and kind of uh, releases off the center and goes and takes away that option. And this was so this was in the Tennessee game and Josh Dobbs uh, still kind of panics, throws the ball, it sails over the back's head and they get a pick six out of it all because he was able to just react immediately to, to what he was seeing in front of him. Um, you saw and there's another game. Yeah, there's in, in another game that he broke down on ESPN with McShay. Yeah, he, that he, video when he's breaking so down. Good. It's great. And he's talking about how, you know, what he's reading and he's, you know, he's got the responsibility to cover the the running back but he's like but i know the running back is staying in and i know that my other you know my other teammate's going to go in on a green dog blitz where he's going in on a delayed blitz based on the fact that running back stays in he's like i know that that means i'm free to either blitz or i see this guy coming across the middle of formation and no one's pick him picked him up so he then immediately kind of bails and starts to trail him of course that's where the ball goes and he knocks it away and gets a pass breakup so it, i mean he is literally processing everything so fast and then the part that, of course, is important is then he has the athleticism and the speed to react and react quickly. I tweeted out a clip where he was he kind of dropped that into a hook zone. And as soon as the quarterback's eyes move to the right to, to his player, he's already taken a couple steps forward. The quarterback starts to throw. He breaks on the ball, immediately makes contact with the receiver as soon as the ball gets there. Um, I mean, it's you don't see that kind of click and close from some defensive backs. And here he is in, in coverage, and he can do that as well. So he's a damn fine linebacker, but he's also pretty good in coverage right away. Yeah, he's, again, you see the athleticism there, and there weren't, I watched a, a, quite a few cut-ups of Foster, and I didn't see a ton of, of him trying to, like, cover guys necessarily all that far downfield. Um, but what you saw from from him underneath, you know, again, what it, one of the things Alabama does defensively is, they match a lot of stuff. So a lot of their defenses um, r- r- work around pattern match principles and, and especially on the interior there. A lot of times kind of the, the the backers that they have, strong safety sometimes, they need to be able to kind of pass guys off depending on the routes that they see from the tight ends and the running backs. And, you know, you see things here of him, again, being able to pick that stuff up, recognize route combinations quickly, and then the athleticism to kind of stick with these guys, right? To be able to to mirror some of these guys in coverage and, uh, you know, close on them as they're running crossing routes, which isn't always a very easy thing to do. Um, so you see, you certainly see some traits there. It's not like you saw him doing uh, Miles Jack-esque things in, in coverage necessarily, but I think when you, when you consider that, and also, like, I think he's an incredible blitzer. Like, I think him and Navarro Bowman are going to be able to do some really interesting things there rushing the passer, and that could be another kind of element that the 49ers use to, to offset uh, a really lack of, of dominant edge rushers, right? They don't have a lot there. I think you see Foster, you see Bowman being able to get after the passer. And so he's a three down guy, which is the most important. You have to be able to, in order to be worth a first round pick in my mind, especially a linebacker, like you have to be able to contribute on passing downs and, and he can definitely do that. What I think makes him a really good blitzer is his ability to navigate the mess that is a bunch of humans flying around the, the line and you'll see him do that both when he blitzes. You'll also see him navigate that when he's kind of seeking to make the tackle and he's looking for contact. He he runs into it's a little bit like the defensive version of Frank Gore, where we would see Frank Gore kind of enter a pile and then he comes out the other end. And you're like, how the hell did he do that? Foster will run into what looks like a wall of people 
and goes unimpeded to the ball carrier behind the line. And you're like, how it did not look that there was any space there. How did you do that? Um, and I think that's what, you know, that ability to basically stay clean and, and navigate a messy area to get to where you want to go is, is a skill that he deploys with a good bit of success. Now that doesn't mean that he's a squeaky clean prospect. He definitely loses in one area on the field and then a couple things off the field. You did see a high number of missed tackles. He had 16 missed tackles in 2016 and you see him kind of either one arm it could be a result of his shoulder, could be a result of him wearing a club, could be lots of things. Uh, but you also see him try to leave his feet uh, every now and again as well and uh, and overcommit. And then he's able to he's not able to wrap up and the player is able to break the tackle. So definitely something that's coachable um, when he does hit you and when he does make contact, it's <laughs> violent, vicious contact. Um, so, you know, he, he definitely can get away with not wrapping up. But ideally, you don't want to see that many missed tackles on on a prospect. But, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. I say that many, but it's again, let's like let's put it in context. Yeah, I mean, that, and that's not a great number. I mean, 16 missed tackles is, is not good. But I think, again, you mentioned the shoulder, you mentioned the club, and, and then you look at he only had seven missed tackles in 2015, right? So that's a much more reasonable number um, to, to kind of be able to deal with there. So you're, you're hoping that it's those things. And, um, you know, again, when, when you see everything else that he does, you're, you're, you can be pretty confident that that's something that's going to kind of iron itself out for sure. And then you've got the medicals, and this is maybe why he slid in addition to the off-the-field stuff. So this is, you know, where he loses, not necessarily on the field, but this is off the field. He had shoulder surgery for a torn labrum, and apparently he did not use uh, Alabama's team doctors, which is Dr. James Andrews. Could you imagine having, like, the premier NFL surgeon as, like, your team doctor in college? Like, that's ridiculous. Alabama, it's Nick Saban for you. (laughs) But yeah, but Nick Saban came out this, this draft weekend and said that, you know, because of the agent or whatever that Foster did not use the team's doctors. And so, you know, he's got no idea the quality of this doctor or whatever because the the rumor was that the surgery did not go well and that he's got to have a second surgery in order to, to continue to, to fully repair the shoulder. Now, Foster's come out and said that that's not true, that, that he doesn't need a second surgery um, and that he will be limited in OTAs but should be ready to go by training camp. Um, Lynch so, also said that. Like Lynch also yeah. said that that kind of their medical team felt confident in it, the 49ers medical team, um, and, and that they did not expect him to need a second surgery at this point. So let's just hope that they're better at evaluating shoulders than they are ACLs. <laughs> uh, and and then the, the big concern, I think, for us is some of the off the field stuff. So he was sent home from the combine because he was yelling at a hospital worker and he effectively tested positive at the combine for a diluted sample. And if we believe him, he was trying to gain weight after an illness. He wanted to get to 230 pounds and, you know, he lost a lot of fluids. And so he was overhydrating. And, and if you don't believe him, then he's a moron because he smoked weed before his big, the biggest job interview of his life. Um, and, and either way, you know, it's like it's and, and we've said it before on the podcast. We don't care that players smoke weed and it could probably help. Right. But but these are the rules. The rules are you can't do it if you want to play in the NFL. Or at the very least, if you are going to do it, don't do it around times where you're going to get tested. Don't do it when times you know you know yeah. you're going to get tested. Like, yeah, this wasn't um, a surprise test. You, you saw you saw some players, like some other NFL players, on Twitter, kind of point. Like, I think uh, I want to say Joe Thomas mentioned something about like you know, most of the time, drug tests in in the NFL like aren't surprised, right? Like they're not there unless unless you're kind of in the uh, the, the drug program and you're, you're having to take a lot more tests a lot more frequently than, than kind of your normal NFL player. Like, and usually, it's random. 
Yeah. When you're in the drug program, it's random yeah. and they do it a whole lot more. If you're not in the drug program, you get tested basically once or twice, but they'd let you know ahead of time. They give you a notice. Right. So it's just like, okay, just like what, a couple of weeks before this thing happens that I know is coming. I just need to stop doing this. And like, it's a very easy thing to do. So yeah, you're kind of concerned about that. I think you're, you're also concerned about, um, you know, some of the stuff that you hear uh, uh, about how he was kind of coddled a little bit in Alabama and Nick Saban really had to go out of his way to make sure that he had, you know, good people around him and had a good situation and, and all of those sorts of things. And uh, Saban, it also made some comments about he was worried about the, the agent and um, whether his agent was going to help kind of facilitate that sort of environment for him as he transitioned to the NFL um, you know, I think Lynch made some comments that make you feel a little bit optimistic that they, they obviously did their homework there and, and kind of uh, seemed to have a plan in place to help him transition. And that's really the big thing. I mean, if his head's right, if, if everything off the field, um, you know, can be a non-factor, essentially, they got one of the better football players. I mean, we talked about the value, right? We didn't love it at two, didn't love it at the top of the draft. But you get a player of that caliber, even if it's not at a premium position, um, at the end of the first round, I mean, he's he's one of the best football players in this draft for sure. So where does he fit? I think right now he immediately slots in at that will linebacker role, the weak side linebacker position. And he is an heir apparent to Navarro Bowman, depending on how Navarro Bowman comes back from his Achilles injury. Uh, this is someone who can play the the Mike or middle linebacker role in the 4-3 defense. Really quickly, just wanted to reiterate what each one of the the linebackers does because we got a couple of questions on Twitter about, you know, wait, what, what's the difference? What, what do they do? And, and so we'll, we'll run through these really quickly. And I think the, the important thing to note about the three linebacker roles are that the will and Mike linebackers are usually the ones that play all three downs. The will and Mike are the ones that stay on the field in nickel. Um, and there are some exceptions to that. And then there's, you've got, you've got your Sam and your auto, um, which David will talk a little bit about, but your, your weak side linebacker or your will uh, is really the kind of the person who's responsible for shooting the backside gap, cleaning up cutback runs, and is going to be someone who's generally a bit smaller and a bit more athletic. And when you think of a Mike linebacker, they're really going to fill the hole as a downhill defender. When you get a power run, it's usually going to go right at that middle linebacker, and they've got to be there to, cut, to help uh, kind of take on blockers and, and blow that up. Now, your Sam or your strong side linebacker or your auto are a little bit different. Yeah, I think, well, one thing that, that Sam is definitely not uh, is it's not interchangeable with a Leo um, as as one uh, particular person that covered the 49ers tried to mention in a, a recent article. Um, that That's is your takeaway, folks. <laughs> That's that, your takeaway. That is uh, that is not a, a true thing. Um, so you're Sam. So traditionally, like in a 4-3, you know, setup, you know, Sam's going to be your strong side backer. In, in this particular scheme, and, and now we don't know if they're going to necessarily copy verbatim what they've been doing in Seattle, but we, we can right now, based on the info that we have, we can assume it's going to be pretty similar, right? And and one of the things that Pete Carroll does is is that same position, a lot of times they, they'll kind of refer to that as auto. And the reason that they make that distinction between Sam and auto is because the auto backer is going to be on the line of scrimmage. Think of him as a 3-4 outside linebacker. Um not always is the auto backer going to be on the strong side. Um, a lot of the times he will. Um, and I think that's probably, you know, if, if they're in, in most situations as they're drawing it up, that's probably where they want him, but not always going to be on the strong side. So you will sometimes see a linebacker that's on the ball. That's also on the weak side. And, and that's kind of the dis- main distinction there that you'll see in this scheme is, 
is that auto backer is the one that's up on the line of scrimmage. This is the one right now that we're kind of slotting in like we expect kind of Ahmad Brooks, right, to be in that role. Maybe, I don't know what they plan for Aaron Lynch. You could see him maybe getting time there. I think he's probably a better fit trying to do the Leo stuff because I'm a little worried about him in coverage. Um, But that's the big thing. So when he is on the strong side, you know, you're going to be lined up over the tight end. Um, A lot of times you're going to have in this cover three setup, you're going to have curl flat responsibility in your zone coverage. If you're doing man, if you're doing more of a cover one situation, um, you're going to be manned up on that tight end a lot of times. So that's the the big thing there. But don't again, don't confuse necessarily being on the strong side. The big thing here is is the auto backer is on the ball. And that's kind of a different role from what you're expecting from your off ball guys in the mic and well. Yeah, and so when you think of your, you know, your will and your mic, that's going to be your your KJ Wright, the will. Your mic is going to be Bobby Wagner, uh, and then when you think of your your Sammer on the ball, um, I forget who the third linebacker is in Seattle. Remind me, David. Um, I forget who it is now. I mean, Bruce Irvin was in that. Yeah, we used to be Bruce Irvin. Um, oh, Bruce you know Irvin, what? They didn't they really to, replace it. Yeah, they tried to play him at Leo uh, at first, and then they decided he might be a better fit. Uh, is is the Sam guy, but um, yeah, it's it's somebody like he needs to be a little bit stronger, right? He, again, he's going to be uh more likely to kind of take on contact initially more likely to be at the point of attack on run plays um and, and so usually a little bit of a bigger guy that's why mod brooks makes sense like mod brooks is at this point in his career if he does anything well which i'm not sure he does it's it's going to be probably being a little bit more physical being able to hold up and run defense um and occasionally yeah that that is going to be a pass rushing type you know they can kind of play it a little bit differently depending on the person that they have there if they have a great pass rusher that they can put into that spot you're going to see him rush a little bit more often. But, uh, you know, again, that he is going to have some coverage responsibility for sure. So a couple things, a couple, I guess these ones aren't necessarily fun facts, but they're interesting facts about Reuben Foster. A, apparently Foster's father shot his mother while she was holding Reuben Foster in her arms. Yeah, that, that's, that's a rough start. To I life. had n- not heard that at all. That's yeah. holy shit. Yeah. That's uh, that's how he kind of started life. And it was, you know, that's he, it's been uh, it's been interesting, I think, for him. And then uh, Brett Bielema, who's an Arkansas coach, said Foster was the best linebacker he has ever broken down. Uh, and that's a quote in, in a Sports Illustrated video. So dude can play. Dude can ball. Um, I mean, and he may be a little bit of a moron off the field. And you know what? That's OK. Uh, as long as I think John Lynch creates some structures to help him succeed at the NFL level. Uh, and it sounds like he will. Uh, we'll be all right. The medical's so, right. The off the field stuff's right. Like this is a special football player for sure. Yeah. So let's talk about then the kind of consensus favorite, I think for better rivals here leading into day three uh, or day two, which was a Keller Witherspoon cornerback, Colorado. We picked him in the third round pick 66 overall. This is a player that started playing football very late. He was uh, playing soccer primarily, uh, as well as some other things. And I think his first year playing football was his senior year in high school. Uh, And then he decides that he's, you know what, I can do everything well. Uh, And so he wants to go to medical school incidentally after after he's done playing football. So smart kid. uh, And this is someone that, you know, we identified early on, mostly David early on as one of the cornerbacks to target in that second round area that could really contribute based on this scheme. So, David, where does Akella Witherspoon win? So it's it's really when you when you started looking uh, it, it even just kind of before you turn on the film, like if you start looking at kind of some of the data and, and trying to identify this sort of cornerback archetype that you have in Seattle, 
Um, he was somebody that really stuck out because he's an incredible athlete. Um, again, referencing Spark, 94th percentile was eighth among cornerbacks this year. Um, he's six, you know, two and a half. He's got 33 inch arms. He's got a massive wingspan. It was, you know, just about 79 and a half inches. And then he also has like an incredible vertical, 40 and a half inch vertical. And so you put all of those things together, right? You put the height, you put the length, you put the vertical. Um, and he has the ability to affect passes in a very wide range. You know, you, you talk about receivers a lot with catch radius, like his, SWAT radius or his passes defense radius, right, is just massive because he's got those long arms. He's got the athletic ability to where even if he's not necessarily in great position, right, uh, he's still able to affect passes. You see it. Richard Sherman does this. I mean, this was the the comp that you got from from the PFF team um, in his scouting report was was Richard Sherman. You see Sherman all the time on those vertical routes up the sideline, right? even if he's trailing a little bit, he's so tall and he's so long that he's able to go up and get those passes, right? He's able to make interceptions on them. He uses the boundary to his advantage. And you see a lot of those same sort of traits from Witherspoon. And again, it's not just about the athleticism and about the testing numbers, all that you want to see him use those tools and translate it to the field. And we saw that with him. Um, You know, you you mentioned that he started playing football late. He got better every single year at Colorado. The passer rating allowed that he had improved every single year, pretty dramatically, um, in 2016, he had 13 passes defensed, which was tied for most in the nation. Uh, and he only allowed a 31.8 completion percent. Like that, that was the fifth best rate, uh, among FBS corners. Like it's, uh, it's an absurd rate. Like it's just crazy to think about that. Um, and again, he's able to, because of that length, because of the athleticism, get his hands on passes, even when he might not be in the best position, you know, have the best leverage on the receiver. That, that length, you wanted to show up on tape. And there was a, a play that I tweeted out earlier today where he's on the line covering John Ross. And it's a slant at the goal line. And he it, it looks like he's kind of beat. I mean, he's not terribly beat. But he's able to, like, kind of at the last minute, just stick a hand out there and knock the ball away. Where if you don't have 33-inch arms, that's more than likely a completion, irrespective of whether you're kind of in coverage or not. And, and you see him do a couple of things that way. You also see him try to get his hand in at the wide receiver at the catch point, whether it be up in the face or whether it be coming down. I mean, he, he's got length in his arms and he, and he uses it, or at least he tries to. And that's the kind of stuff you want to see show up on tape. He's also got really good skills at the line of scrimmage. He's got very quick feet. Um, I couldn't necessarily see a soccer influence, but David, you were like, yep, I, th- he must have like played soccer or something. Uh, cause it, it showed up. You were able to see something. Yeah. I think uh, you and- saw, I think you saw the way that he was kind of fluid with his feet, right? Fluid in his pedal, um, in his ability to transition. Um, you know, especially like there were, I think there were a, a, a few really good examples in that Washington game. If you got a draft breakdown, turn on the Washington game there, you can see him on John Ross, like be able to transition, on some of those vertical routes and everything just looks very, very quick, very smooth. Um, But I think, you know, the other thing there that sticks out that's important with footwork at the line of scrimmage, especially when you're talking defensive backs and you're talking cornerbacks in this scheme is a lot of it being a good press corner is, is being patient at the line of scrimmage, right? You you don't want to overreact to the receiver's movements, right? Receivers are going to have some different moves that they're going to try to do to release and get off the ball and get into their route and you want to kind of stay square to the line of scrimmage, stay patient, and, and then use that length to kind of reach out, right, and, and disrupt their timing, disrupt their route a little bit. 
Um, and you see that from him. He, he had a really high success rate in press coverage uh, while he was at Colorado last year. So um, those are all things that, again, translate very well. Talked about the deep ball a little bit, uh, you know, the Richard Sherman comparison. This was is maybe like of all the crazy stats that we saw from him uh, last year. This might be my favorite one on 30 targets on 30 deep targets. Excuse me. So those that are going 20 yards or more in the air, he only gave up three receptions last year. Like that's like the first thing that you point out with Richard Sherman, right, is his ability to just eliminate the fade route from that press alignment. Um, and, and this is something that we see uh, Witherspoon do very consistently. And I think there was another play that that I tweeted out as well. And I think David, you may have tweeted out the same one where he's using the sideline. He's using the boundary to basically squeeze the wide receiver out of the play. And he ends up becoming the de facto wide receiver on the play. And, and it's that kind of, I think, ability when you're running deep, being able to stay in phase and then just squeezing the wide receiver to basically render him useless is is textbook and that that deep play i think was was textbook when when you're thinking about the kind of stuff that you want to see from akella witherspoon so definitely someone that we're super excited about but that doesn't mean that he's a perfect prospect where does he lose uh well let's start and end with the run game uh because he's got a couple of um lol worthy clips that, <laughs> that uh, is just I, my it's, favorite is we. So I, 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 I tweeted it out. I tweeted out a picture or a, a clip of him uh, sliding to avoid a pulling tackle. And the reply, one of my favorite replies is just business decision. <laughs> that, yep. That, that's there that's exactly not, what it was. There is not a better way to describe Witherspoon's run game. It's just a <laughs> whole bunch of business decisions. Like, um, <laughs> And and so yeah, I mean, you look at some of the numbers, right? The the run stop rate was less than one percent, uh, you know, zero point six percent, one hundred and fourteenth among cornerbacks. Round that up uh, to one percent. <laughs> tackling efficiency ranked one hundred and fifty sixth. Um, so it's bad. I mean, in the Michigan game. So if you want to see kind of the worst case, uh, you, you you turn on that Michigan game on Draft Breakdown, and it's I, I mean there are probably a half dozen run plays there that like his actions or inaction leads to like some big plays for the Michigan offense. So uh, it, it is, it's not great. Um, however, I would say that again, so do when you, you look at these players and this was a reason that Witherspoon was, was probably not high on a lot of overall cornerback rankings, right? You didn't see him really referenced as like a, a top three, top five guy in this cornerback class. But if you're, if you're building a 49ers draft board, he probably ranked much higher. He was probably one of the top cornerbacks on their board, right? Um, and a lot of that is because it's not as important in this scheme for cornerbacks to be great run defenders. Um, and this is for, I think, a couple of reasons. One, so you're playing a lot of single high stuff, right? We know that about this defense. That gets you two predominant coverages. That gets you cover three, and that gets you cover one. In cover one, when you're man-to-man, you have no response or no run responsibility as a cornerback on the outside. You're locked up on that receiver. You're not looking into the backfield. You're not trying to read run pass. You don't give a shit what's happening other than the cornerback or excuse me, the receiver that's right in front of you in cover three. You're a deep defender in most cover three. So there is one exception I'll talk about in a minute, but most cover three, you're deep third, right? So you're playing deep pass responsibility there. You are very much a secondary run support person. So you're going to sit in that deep zone. Um, and then once run has very clearly declared itself, then you're going to go pursue and try to help out on the run. But really, 
the other players that are up closer to the box should be handling the run fits. They're, those are going to be your primary run defenders. The one exception is if you go to what's usually called a, a cloud cover three, which is where the cloud references cornerback and, and being your primary force player on one side. So all of a sudden, rather than that deep third in coverage, he's kind of a flat defender, curl flat defender. And that means that he has primary force responsibility where he does need to read run pass and if he sees run, he needs to come up in a hurry and be able to force that back inside. Um, I would not expect the 49ers to use that very heavily, considering uh, right now it looks like their starting cornerbacks are going to be Witherspoon and, and Rashad Robinson, I think. Um, neither very big physical guys, uh, or at least physical, yeah, like big in terms of, uh, you know, frame and, and, and having some weight to them and having some good play strength there. Like, that's not what you think of when you think of these guys. Um, so I don't anticipate that they use that that sort of coverage very frequently. Um, so hopefully this kind of deficiency is something that can be masked a little bit by the scheme that they're going to be using. I think overall where he fits is probably as a starter at cornerback. And right now I tweeted out a projected, I think, backfield for the 49ers, which I think will, if all goes well, be the, the starting four, the starting backfield on opening day. And that's going to be Rashard Robinson, Eric Reed playing in the box, uh, Jimmy Ward playing at deep safety. Uh, and I think Akella Witherspoon is, is going to be the other starter. Uh, I think that just based on athleticism and tools alone, uh, he is a better prospect than, say, someone like a Dante Johnson or anyone that we've got uh, at the cornerback position. And then, you know, that that's pretty much, I think, how how it how it should and, and will play out. So I think we got a another starting caliber player in the third round of the NFL draft, especially as we remake the defense. Now, next up, you've got Joe Williams running back at Utah. He was picked in the fourth round, pick 121 overall. Uh, and Joe Williams is interesting because he, he's he got a, a really another really interesting story. He One of the knocks that you see in all the scouting reports for him is that he, wa- he took, uh, I think, like a four-game retirement for mental health, four or six games or something like that. And uh, he got knocked a little bit on scouting reports because they weren't sure whether or not they could rely on him. But... Long story short, Joe Williams uh, had his little sister die in his arms uh, because she had an undiagnosed heart condition. And that was 10 years ago, sure, but he's been dealing with that loss basically ever since. And and that's, I mean, I can't even imagine what that's like. And so he finally said he he had to take some time off to to get basically, you know, some, some mental health help. Uh, he did that, and then he came back and finished out his senior season um, he also had some other off-field stuff. I think he got kicked out of the UConn program uh, for for some alleged stuff that that he done. So this is a player that, if everything is right again off the field, then you're getting a player who, where he wins, he's a home run hitter in his own scheme. He has the speed to outrun people if he gets to the second level. Um, he is a one cut runner. He's someone who is a little big framed. He's le- I think one scattering report described him as leggy. Um, and he does, he does, he looks like he's got a lot of legs. He looks like a little bit like that CJ McCollum picture from when he was in high school, you know, where it's like the torso of a six year old and the legs of a tarantula. Oh, yeah. Um, like that's, that's kind of like, that's, <laughs> that's how he looks a little bit. Um, and he does run a little upright, but God, he's fast. He's real fast. And I, I tweeted out a couple clips of him earlier today where as soon as he's got really good vision too. And, and if he sees something, He's gone through that hole in a minute, uh, and and it's it's really really awesome because he could be a home run hitter in his own scheme. 
Yeah, I mean, that's the first. So you, you look at the PFF scouting report on this guy and, and I, you watched, uh, you know, more tape on on Williams than I did. I didn't get a chance to get to him a whole lot. But I mean, the first thing that, that is referenced is has the speed and acceleration to destroy safety angles and outrun almost everyone. Like, yeah, that's that's kind of the first thing that you point to with him. And, and I think, you know, it's interesting. A lot of people used Shanahan as kind of like the excuse. You know, we haven't talked about Bathard yet. Um, we'll, we'll get there, but I think that was one of the more questionable picks that people kind of took issue with. And the, the justification, right. Was that, Oh, you're going to trust Shanahan, right? Shanahan saw something in there, thinks he's a fit, thinks he can work with the tools that he has. We're going to trust that and go with it. And that's, and that's fine. I don't necessarily disagree, but if I was actually to choose a single position where I was just going to kind of blindly trust Shanahan, um, it, it would actually be running backs, running backs in the mid to late round. I mean, that's a big Bobby Turner influence as well. And, these guys have been, you know, between the Shanahan's and Bobby Turner have been selecting running backs, you know, kind of mid rounds, late rounds, undrafted and plugging them into this system and getting production for for an incredibly long time, for two decades now. Um, so I, I think that, you know, there are some concerns of, of with his game that we'll, we'll get to. But certainly if I'm going to kind of put my faith in Kyle Shanahan and trust that he kind of knows what he's doing and he's able to see something in the guy it's going to be a running back at this stage of the draft um, that, that kind of fits what they're trying to do with that wide zone scheme. Yeah, you look at his athletic numbers and his broad jump is in the 89th percentile at the halfback position. His 40-yard dash is the 88th percentile. Those are, you know, 40-yard dash is straight line speed. Broad jump is explosion. Uh, and, and you look at his spark number and he's, you know, he's a plus athlete. He, he ranks 16th at spark. That's just uh, at four four spots below Joe Mixon. Uh, Joe Mixon uh, is at the, basically the 70th percentile of NFL athletes at his position, and Joe Williams is at the 65th percentile. So, I mean, this is, uh, you know, athletically, he, he's an athlete, and that's exactly what you want from, from someone that you're going to draft in this area. And 100%, David, I agree with you. If you're going to trust this scouting team or, or this coaching staff with something, you trust them with, you trust them with halfbacks. You really do. Now, that doesn't mean that Joe Williams, though, is, is completely perfect. Of course, uh, he's got issues with ball security. He put a ball on the ground once every 36 and a half offensive touches as a senior. And this is a senior, right? So this is after, um, you know, he, he had gone through a lot of the kind of program switching and, you know, he walked away from the game a little bit. Most of the, his explosive plays really came when he was a senior. Really, they came against UCLA, which oh, he had like <laughs> over 300 yards against UCLA. That was a rough game for, for the Bruins. But he still had some fumbling issues. He doesn't squeeze the ball that well. He kind of sticks it away from his frame, uh, and and that means that he fumbles every now and again. My favorite thing about the ball security thing uh, is it just that it reminds us nothing to do with Joe Williams. Um, but it, it kind of throughout the pre-draft prospect, you know, uh, one of our our favorite football Twitter people, Charles McDonald, um, was watching some tape on Marlon Mack, who's the running back from UCF, and uh, th- there were some plays like Marlon Mack just kind of like hangs the ball out there like he's fucking Deion Sanders sometimes or something like he's just hanging it out there, palming the ball. Uh, and he, uh, Charles had kind of put up one of those clips and was just like, ball security is for cowards. So as soon as I saw that you had kind of put ball security under where he loses, I just like laughed to myself and immediately thought of ball security for cowards. So yeah, I mean, hey, confidence, right? It'll work for him. That's exactly what it is for Joe Williams, I'm sure, is as well. It'll be, yeah. it'll be fine. <laughs> Don't worry about it, guys. <laughs> it's fine it's fine everything's fine um you know ball security when the ball's in his hands but 
Also in the passing game, um, I, I don't think that Joe Williams is going to be a prominent feature of the passing game for Shanahan. I, I heard some people make reference to you know the, the, him being a pass catching back. Look, he he can catch the ball. I think um, you didn't see it a whole lot on tape. He it doesn't does not run, pass block all that well. Um, I tweeted out a clip of him trying to take on a blitzing, I think, linebacker defensive back. It, it looked like he was trying to cut block him, but I think he ended up just like dipping his head real low and putting his head into the guy's stomach and completely got blown up. I mean, it, it just it didn't, it does not look good. He tries to play patty cake instead of pass block. Um, he it runs his routes just with like minimal effort. Um, it, so I, I don't know that he's necessarily your your pass catching running back. He's not that kind of compliment to Carlos Hyde. Uh, I think he is definitely a put the ball in his hands and let him put his foot in the ground and get up field type of runner, not necessarily a, uh, a pass catcher. So I think that's probably where he fits is a change of pace back that is going to give, uh, you know, the ability to, to hit a home run and, and has game breaking speed. And it, I think when you look at where his roster fit is, he probably replaces someone like a Mike Davis. Yeah, I, I think the the other thing t- in, that's important to mention with him as well is is probably expectations, right? So I talked to um, Matt Clausen right after the the, the pick, who is uh, one of the analysts at PFF. He he did a lot of the running back scouting reports for us, um, and he was a former college running back, so uh, kind of knows his stuff in that regard. And and he really mentioned Joe Williams as being a guy that, while a good scheme fit, I think for for Shanahan's offense is somebody that's not going to necessarily create a lot of yards himself at the first level. He's really going to be kind of reliant on his blocking to get him out into to open space where then all of a sudden, you know, the speed and, and everything there that we talked about athletically can come into play and he can kind of um, really take on, you know, some of the secondary players and stuff. But he really is only somebody right now that kind of gets what's blocked for him, essentially. And that was a big thing at Utah. Utah had a, you know, a top 10 run blocking offensive line this year. So that was something that really helped him out. We know the 49ers do not have that. Um, and, and so I think initially I might temper expectations a little bit um, in, in terms of his impact. I think you're, I think you're right. I think Mike Davis is probably on the way out. It's going to be interesting to see how kind of, you know, they have a ton of running backs right now on the 90 man. And it's going to be interesting to see who kind of ends up settling in those, those spots. But um, you know, day one, 2017 season like I might temper my expectations and then once we have a chance to to really spend some more time and energy addressing the offensive line you might see him you know improve later on fun fact about Joe Williams athletic comp is Corey Sheets is on the list (laughs) Corey Sheets so I think you're gonna you're if if the athletic comp is worth anything we're gonna see Joe Williams have a couple of breakaway runs that are going to make his average and per game numbers look pretty gaudy in the preseason. And then you're going to hear a Joe Williams is our future kind of, you know, post from someone. And they're going to be like, get Carlos Hyde out of there. Joe Williams. I want to see Joe Williams all the time. I want to see him all the time. He's the guy who's going to do it. I don't know why I'm doing this voice, but that's the voice I think about when I think about internet keyboard, you know, pounders. Uh, so let's switch gears then. And let's talk about George Kittle. We picked him in the fifth round, second pick in the fifth round, 146 overall. George Kittle. Played safety in high school. Played wide receiver in high school. He is the number one athlete at the tight end position. I didn't think he'd be there in the fifth round. But here we go. Adding some more athleticism. Adding another plus athlete to the offense at a position of, of need. 
I mean, we talked about right in in kind of that last pre-draft episode how we were going to see some players it, it kind of uh, positions that we think were were the strongest positions in the draft. We we're going to see some of those guys that were very talented players get pushed down the draft board a little bit because teams, you know, they're not just going to only focus on those positions. Some teams aren't going to be able to help themselves. They're going to have to go out and get O line play, get interior defensive line play, you know, get these quarterbacks that maybe weren't, you know, kind of the the strongest areas of the draft, but they were going to have to get in because they felt like they were positions of need. And, and I think the, the Witherspoon selection, you know, at the top of the third round, and then this Kittle selection at the top of the fifth round were really great examples of that were players that had the talent in kind of maybe a, a normal draft at their position to go much higher. Um, but because there was so much talent here, you know, we see them get pushed down a little bit and yeah, with Kittle, it's, it's uh he's an exciting guy. I think he, you see his fit immediately when you, when you turn on the tape. I mean, you mentioned the freaky athleticism, number one in spark. Um, but he kind of, he translates that to, to all areas of the game. I mean, he's a really, really good run blocker and you can see him kind of use that explosion off the ball. Cause he's not the, the biggest guy necessarily. I think he's like 240 pounds, um, maybe a little bit more. So he was able though, to, to kind of use some of that explosiveness to really control guys, uh, in the run game. I mean, if you, if there was somebody that he did have kind of this, uh, uh, a size advantage on, it was just, it was hilarious to watch him like plant, DBs and just kind of run them off the field and plant them on their back. Um, and, my favorite, my favorite tweet was one where, and I think you tweeted the same clip out where he's pushing this poor DB out about 15 yards away from the play. And I think yeah. the quote was, uh, "Dear Lord Kittle, that's someone's child." Oh yeah, yeah. Was, <laughs> I think that was uh, Connor from from Bleacher Report. Yeah, tweeted that. Yeah, way. yeah I tweeted out the same clip. He did the same with like nearly an identical play. Um, so that was like when you when you go to draft breakdown again, there are only a couple of uh, games for Kittle, unfortunately. So you got, you get two games and this was one of them, the North Dakota state game. Uh, and it's like the second snap that's in that video. You just yep. see him just destroy this poor cornerback, you know, that that's having to, to be up in the box and run defense because of the formation that I was in. Um, but then you saw a nearly identical play on the same cornerback later in the first quarter. So, uh, yeah, he's going to, if he, if he gets an opportunity to kind of, um, you know, get on, a, a DB get on, you know, maybe a smaller linebacker. You, I think you see him really be able to kind of physically dominate those situations, but he's still very effective. I think on guys that are bigger than him, you know, you saw him take on linebackers. You saw him take on DNs when he needed to go kick somebody out. Um, and, and so the other thing I think with run blocking specifically that, that you like that um, really sticks out is Iowa ran a lot of zone plays, they ran a lot of outside zone, ran a lot of inside zone. And so you were able to see, him execute a lot of the exact same type of blocks that he's going to need to do with the 49ers, right? Um, we know that Shanahan's going to be super heavy on the zone stuff, especially outside zone. And so it, it's an easy projection in that, in that way. Um, same thing as a receiver. A lot of what Iowa did, they were very run heavy, a lot of play action stuff. Um, and so you get to see him kind of leak out. I think we talked about, uh, you know, when we were breaking down Shanahan's offense and talked about the play action section and everything there, about how he does some creative things with the tight ends to kind of leak them out and get them down the field in open space. And you saw some of that with Kittle at Iowa. Like it was just immediately like, yep, he's going to run that exact same route in that exact same situation in Kyle Shanahan's offense. Um, and even though the, the overall numbers weren't there because of Iowa being super run heavy, I mean, he, he put up some big numbers when he was given the opportunity to produce. 
So he he does provide a, a great run blocker. He's also a mismatch as a receiver. He didn't do a lot of routes or run a lot of routes, but when he did, he did have 1.91 yards route run, uh, yards per route run over the past two seasons, and he averaged 7.1 yards after the catch per reception. So those are those are pretty good numbers. So when he is in the passing game, he is able to turn that athleticism into production. Now where he loses is something that again is something that I think a lot of college tight ends have a problem with, and that's just his route running. He's not a refined route runner at this stage. He didn't have to create a ton of separation because of how he was used at Iowa, and at least in the, the game or two that we were able to watch. And, and so that's probably why he slipped to the fifth round. But even then, I think this is exactly the kind of tight end you want when you're thinking of a move tight end, and, and that's really going to be his role on on the team, is going to be a move tight end. Ian Wharton's draft guide compares him to, ding, 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 Kyle Juszczyk of all people. Uh, and so this is the kind of tight end that you think um, that you're getting is you're getting, he's listed, I think on ESPN as a fullback. I thought that was interesting. Huh. I don't think yeah, he's going to, yeah, no, he's not, gonna I don't think he's going to be, a, uh, he's not going to be a fullback. He is going to be our tight end. And I think he's going to be our, our tight end one. I think he's going to be the starter or should be the starter at tight end. And when you think of what it is that he can do, he's already a plus run blocker. And he's already familiar with a pro style system. This is one of the reasons that uh, that Shanahan wanted uh, the quarterback, which we're going to talk about in a little bit, is because Iowa ran a pro style system. They did run a system where a lot of the concepts are familiar. And so I think he's going to have a leg up in that. I don't think that Vance McDonald is necessarily going to um, going to be here for much longer, maybe <laughs> um, trying to trade that dude for a ham sandwich and it's not working, yeah. um, you know, and I'm still but I think Jerron Ham is gone. Um, I think Selleck, if, especially if you look at his, his run block tape from last year, uh, he should be not playing for the 49ers. Um, and so, yeah, I think that he could easily be our starting tight end. And if not our starting tight end, then at least the next tight end that comes in on two tight end packages. Yeah, I think he to me, it would be very much a surprise for him not to be the starting tight end uh, to, to get. And I'll, I'll frame that by when we look back at the end of the season. I would be barring injury surprised that he's not the tight end with the most snaps for, for yeah. the 49ers. Yeah. I think you're looking at, um, you know, him, I think Paulson are probably the two that are locks at this point, you know, with McDonald, I think it's gonna, I don't, I, it's hard to say if they're going to be willing to just outright cut him if they don't find, you know, somebody to kind of take him off their hands, but obviously yeah. he's not in the long-term plans. So I think you're looking at probably McDonald or, or maybe Blake Bell at that, that last spot. I, I don't know with them having a fullback that you can really see them keeping more than three tight ends. Yeah. Um, and, and so, yeah, I think that he makes sense. I think he's immediately their best receiving tight end. And he's also, you know, again, a very good blocker. That's somebody that Shanahan likes to use a lot of run heavy personnel sets, you know, uh, 21, 22 personnel, 12 personnel, multiple tight ends on the field. Um, and, and he's going to be able to give them kind of a run pass versatility in those sets, you know, almost kind of like a, what Delaney Walker was able to do for the 49ers in the Harbaugh days. The next up, Trent Taylor. He, we got one, we got our hands on one of them white shifty slot wide receivers. Uh, I hear they help you win championships. <laughs> That's the word on the street. You get a white receiver, put him in the slot. Just a championship. I mean, Jim rat, you know, brings yep. his lunch pail to work. Just a, a real uh, grinder. He's got a hot, he's got a high football IQ that Trent Taylor. Uh, Loves we the picked game, him man. out of li- Loves, <laughs> loves the game. He's the first one in first one in the building. Last one out. Um, uh, and he'll stand for the national anthem. We're just kidding guys. Uh, He's not any of those things. He's just a white guy. He's just a white dude. Yeah. That, that was all (laughs) we made all that up. Here's (laughs) what we do know. We do know that he is, uh, from Louisiana tech. 
Uh, he was picked in the fifth round, pick 177. Uh, and <laughs> where does he actually win? Uh, <laughs> not just based on white people tropes. <laughs> I think uh, I, I think the separation uh, ability there is is really great. Um, I mean, you see, so he didn't test overall as is like a, a plus athlete, but he was very high when you looked at, at things like that measure acceleration and change of direction. You know, he was at 80th, 80th percentile higher in the three cone, the short shuttle, long shuttle. Um, and I think that really shows up when you're running the short and intermediate routes. Right. Um, one thing that Trent Taylor, you know, with the the, the Louisiana Tech offense in general is they were, you know, super open, um, fast paced. You know, they they went empty a bunch, um, threw the ball over the place. Like I think forty percent of his receptions came on screen passes, or forty percent of his routes, one of the two. Um, and so, you know, it was a lot of RPO stuff, a lot of bubble screens. But even when you kind of filter some of that stuff out and you look at just what he was doing once you're releasing downfield more and and, and working in the short and intermediate areas. Um, I mean, the ability to separate is there. Um, it, it, it's it's very clear. And he's going to be able to, again, that's why you like the testing is because it, it gives you a frame of reference because he's playing against, you know, not necessarily great competition compared to a lot of other, uh, you know, college players that you're going to have at Power 5 conferences. So you'd like to see him test well because that gives you the frame of reference to how he's going to fare against NFL caliber athletes. And so I think that part's there. And then the hands are just fucking incredible. Dude catches everything. Um, so again, high volume offense uh, at, at Louisiana Tech had 397 targets over his career. Had it like 171 last year. Only dropped 12 passes. So that's 3%. It was sub 3% in 2016, um, which is just a, a phenomenal drop rate. So he doesn't necessarily have the biggest catch radius, which we'll get to. But if it's there, if, if he can get his hands on it, he is going to catch it more often than that. Which is so interesting because usually you think to yourself, OK, you know, bigger hands will help that. His hands are this is the the tiny hands club basically is what we drafted. <laughs> but he's got eight and a quarter inch hands, which is in the second percentile for wide receivers. That's 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 little. That means 98 percent of NFL wide uh, of the people here that they've tested from mock draftable have bigger hands than he does. Um, he's, he's a little dude, he's a little dude, but you know what? Uh, he, I bet you he brings his lunch pail to work. Uh, I bet you he's a grinder. I mean, um, and, and, and that's the obvious. So, I mean, uh, and also there's one more thing with the wins, but like where he loses, that's the very obvious thing. Like he, he doesn't have uh, the size isn't there, right? He's five, five eight, eight, 180. It's, it's, it's like, he's a small, it's very dude. likely. Um, it's very likely that you listening to this podcast right now are five, eight and near maybe one eighty. Like, like it's, it's you <laughs> it's, basically. Yeah. It's you. He's, um, he's your size. And so you worry a little bit like, um, you know, he, he certainly wasn't anybody that, you know, somebody that shied away from contact over the middle. Like you, you saw him willing to engage, like willing to be physical, willing to, to kind of run those routes over the middle of the field and, and take hits from linebackers and safeties. But you also saw a lot of open space again, because of the type of offense that they were running there and, you know, taking a hit from, uh, you know, I don't know what conference USA or whatever the hell that they're in linebacker or safety, like, isn't the same thing from is taking a hit from cam chancellor, right? Like th- those are, those are very different things. So you do worry a little bit about the size, but again, I think hopefully the, the, the quickness and the change of direction ability is there to, to hopefully help him, uh, limit the number of big hits that he can take because he is great after the catch. So that was kind of the final thing on where he wins that you did see, I mean, Carlos Henderson, which was his teammate there, uh, is kind of the standard in this class for after the catch ability. 
he was very good. He wasn't quite that, but you know, he averaged uh, nearly eight yards after the catch, 7.7 per reception uh, last year. He got better every year in that regard. Um, and, and he's somebody that's not going to, you know, he's it's a white guy thing, right? He's going to get upfield immediately. He's going to take what's there. If he does have some open space to run, he's going to be able to take advantage of that. You know, he's probably going to make, make, maybe he makes the first guy miss something like that. So I think he's going to be a, a plus in that regard. Um, but yeah, that's, he's a, he's a slot guy. He's, this is somebody that we haven't really had this mold of, of slot receiver in San Francisco for a while. Almost. Uh, so he, where he fits, I, we've been talking about him in the slot this whole time. He's going to be a slot guy. He lined up in the slot on 95% of snaps in 2016, 97.9% of snaps in 2015 and 98.8% of snaps, uh, in 2014. So he really diversified his, uh, <laughs> his position in there. Three percentage points. And he improved ever so slightly year <laughs> after year. Um, but it is going to be interesting because one of his physical comps on mock draftable is Jeremy Curley coming out of TCU in 2011. Another wide receiver that we've just signed to a, uh, I think we signed him to a three-year deal or something like that. So I think when you think of the slot guys that we've gotten, you know, Curley, Ellington, uh, and now Taylor, it, it is going to be interesting to see how many you keep because you can't, you, you were probably going to keep five, maybe six wide receivers they can't all be slot guys. Uh, so, you know, you, you really begin to have, you probably are going to have two positions that these players are going to, are going to take up just signed Curly to an extension. Uh, Taylor, we just drafted Ellington still not on the field, apparently made of glass. So, uh, you know, I think the writing is on the wall perhaps for Ellington, which is unfortunate because I think he uh, could really be special if he just stays freaking healthy. So let's get to everyone else uh, because the, the players that we talked about were, I think, players that have an opportunity to impact in year one. But we drafted some other players that we don't necessarily think are going to be impact players day one. They're not necessarily bad draft picks. It's just for one reason or another, whether it be roster construction, their uh, ability to produce right away, um, or just simply that you know they're, they are picked because they either had high production or high weight speed guys they're they're probably people that you're you shouldn't expect a whole lot of and these are mostly the late round picks with one notable exception so let's do a quick hit for everyone else david uh and that starts with cj uh it's bathard not beat hard uh also known as sunshine for forever i mean go ahead and 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 get that call to action ready call action is hashtag beat hard um (laughs) hashtag beat hard so cj (laughs) Bethard, quarterback, Iowa, picked him in the third round. Uh, there were a lot of people that were upset with this pick because they thought that he would be available much later. They thought that he was, you know, a sixth, seventh round pick. And and this is really, you know, we put him in the everyone else category, not necessarily because we think he's going to be terrible, but just because he's a developmental quarterback. You shouldn't expect if you're hearing a lot about C.J. Bethard when it comes to, you know, week one, it's because a catastrophic injury happened to two quarterbacks at once. You know, I, they were in a golf cart that maybe flipped over and mangled their legs. Uh, and, and he's the last quarterback standing. Or it's because, you know, something has gone just something's gone terribly wrong. If you're hearing about him as a, as a year one impact player. Um, yes. So that's why, you know, there's just not there's not a lot to, to focus on here. He is, I think, a quarterback that is is interesting and intriguing. And it's definitely a Shanahan pick. And, you know, when you think about what he does well, it's, you know, it's someone who had a, a better year in 2015 and roster kind of turnover and, and a lack of talent in 2016 meant that he didn't produce as much. 
his adjusted completion percentage was well above the FBS average. So he's an accurate passer, even if his actual raw completion percentage number doesn't prove it. I think 9% of the passes that he threw were dropped. Uh, and that was like second highest in the nation. So he didn't have a supporting cast to help him out. He did play in a pro-style system, a zone running game, lots of play action. Uh, I think Shanahan probably saw him and, and was able to more easily project what he uh, what he could do. And here you go. You've got your quarterback project. Yeah, I mean, I think he Shanahan himself said it, right? Like he right now is QB three um, of three on the roster. He's a developmental guy. Like there is there's no reason to expect a lot there. Um, you know, it's interesting whether, again, he could have been picked later. I think there's a, a pretty solid argument for that. Um, and, and I think especially if you, you know, looked, if they would have kind of missed out on some of the other guys that they got that we talked about before that I think um, are all quality players, all have a, a really strong chance to carve out a pretty significant role early on. And it, it's it's certainly questionable, um, you know, and get it. But again, here you're trying to trust Shanahan, right? You're trying to trust that he can kind of uh, identify certain traits that he thinks will make quarterbacks successful in his system um, and, and be able to, to have a plan to develop those things because he certainly is not going to be a player that is, is ready nor will be asked to play early on. Yeah, he uh, was solid under pressure. He had a 62% adjusted completion percentage when he was under pressure. That ranked 14th. Um, and, and really, I think this is a player with some solid tools. He does. It looks like he's got a strong arm. I mean, it, it, he's got a, a quick release and he's able to get the ball uh, into some into some spaces. But I do think that this pick to me is the first indication that the draft room panicked. I think that this, I think they they probably looked at the top of the board and they said, you know, you know Mitchell Trubisky is probably our QB one, and we've got these other QBs ranked in the in these orders. But this guy we probably rank higher than a lot of other teams, and this is the guy that we want if we're going to pick a developmental quarterback. Which one of these guys do you want, Shanahan? You want this guy? Okay, cool. We want to go ahead and get this guy. And then they're sitting there and they're sitting there and they're like, uh, I don't know if he's going to be there. And Minnesota called them and they were like, hey, do you want to trade? Because this was a, a pick where they traded, uh, where Minis- they, weren't, they weren't planning to make the pick. Yeah. And Minnesota called them and said, hey, we're looking to move. Are you guys interested? And, and so they offered to, to actually go back into the third round and, and make the pick. And I think, that, I think it's just a little bit of panic. I think it's like, this is the guy we want. We don't know if he's going to be there in the fourth round because we've got a fourth round grade on him. And we think other teams might be you know, there to pick him up and they got him. And, and I think that this is the only move to me that's like a little meh. But at the end of the day, again, I don't hate it. You got to trust your, your head coach and, and let him do him. Yeah, I think we look back and that one's probably, you know, the one you, you maybe take the most issue with, you know, three, four years from now. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to, I've watched basically zero, uh, you know, seconds of these quarterbacks uh, in, in this class. I mean, the one thing that I think a lot of fans might point to, especially if they, you've been listening to our podcast, which was Nathan Peterman, right? He was kind of the, the, the guy that was identified that Steve mentioned, you know, that it seemed like he might be a good fit as, as a late round developmental guy. And so you see somebody like him go, you know, with a 28th selection in the fifth round. And then, you know, Bethard's there, you know, they're, they're, they're taking him nearly as a top 100 selection at 104 overall. So you don't, love the value for for a developmental player you know i think you you maybe have hope that he's going to to develop into a starter a little bit quicker than 
Um, it seems like he will when you're taking him in the third round, but uh, yeah, I don't know. It's it's uh, it's hard to see. Obviously, teams are not great at identifying quarterbacks all the time, so so looking at his draft position right now, I don't know that it's all that helpful. So then you got DJ Jones. We drafted him in the sixth round, 14th pick, 198 overall. He is a short, stout, nose tackle type, uh, six foot, 319. Uh, he's a solid athlete for his size. Uh, and probably the most notable thing about him is that he was on Land Chance, Last Chance U. He came from that junior college uh, for, from the Netflix show. If you haven't seen it, you should go watch it. It's a fantastic show uh, about, yes, football, but really about the stories of the players that go to uh, a junior college that is able to, to kind of draw some top talent before they go uh, and succeed other places. Uh, and so, yeah, so he was on Last Chance U. And uh, I told uh, I told Mrs. Better Rivals that, we drafted someone from Last Chance U, and she was like, oh, that's awesome. And that's, you know, <laughs> you got to know about DJ Jones. There you he go. He overcomes adversity, man. Uh, He's got a, I guess what you do need to know, though, is that he had a 7% run stop rate over 444 career snaps. Uh, so that's, uh, that's pretty good. The NFL average among defensive tackles was 7.3. Uh, so, yeah, he, he is he's a run stuffing, run stuffing kind of where would he fit in that, you know, Brandon Williams type of, you know, shaded nose that that the defense employs. Yeah, I think his best case is you're you're probably looking at him competing for some time um behind Earl Mitchell is is kind of that one technique and in base situations probably not seeing the field a whole lot in sub packages. Um next guy, Earl Mitchell. Who did I just say? I I did not say Earl Mitchell. That's who I thought in my head. Did I say Earl Mitchell out loud? No, you said uh Brandon Maybe Williams. Bra- Brandon Williams. Yeah. No, that's not. I meant Earl Mitchell. That's yeah. No. All yeah, right. Well, that's one. Glad, uh, <laughs> glad I caught the brain fart. <laughs> uh, a couple picks later, PETA. Um, and if you think we're messing with that last name, you have not listened to that this show long <laughs> enough. I'm going to try uh, it, though. I'm going to try it. All right. It. Go for it's, it. I, okay. Because it's, 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 it's syllabic, I think. Um, Tau Moapenu. Sure. PETA. PETA. Yeah. Uh, this is what you need to know about PETA. 56 quarterback I, I told- pressures. <laughs> On 645 snaps, pass rush snaps throughout his career at Utah. So um, he was somebody that didn't you know, necessarily spend a ton of time on the field, has a fairly limited sample. I mean, those 645 snaps came over three seasons, um, but he was productive there. So 46 quarterback pressures, I believe 23 of those were sacks. You look at his pass rush productivity, which uh, is, is kind of a rate of pressure, but it gives a little bit more weight to the sacks than it does hits and hurries. Um, he's at it just over 12. So that would be, if, if that's a number he can translate to the NFL, that would be a very good mark among edge rushers. Usually we look at it good, uh, you know, for edge guys at about 10%, um, in, in terms of pass rush productivity there, anything high, usually your league leaders will be, you know, maybe around 14, 15%, something like that. Um, so yeah, he's an undersized guy. He's going to be, uh, you know, kind of a Leo candidate, somebody that's, uh, expected to play on the outside I, I think he'll have an opportunity to compete for for some time there because they don't have a lot of guys they don't have a lot of depth that, that people that really fit that spot um but yeah that's that's really that's it for him I mean that's that's kind of his calling card is is being undersized kind of athletic dude didn't test super well but had pretty solid change of direction um and and he's going to be somebody that hope hopefully can you know provide some bend around the edge I think uh I said that it's perfect that his first name is Peta because his last name is a pain in the ass. Uh, we'll figure out how to pronounce it eventually, but not not today, not today. Uh, his athletic comp on mock draftable was Paris Harrelson, incidentally, uh, and oh, really? Derek Barnett. 
Interesting. Yeah, that that's that's the guy. Those and Everett Brown and D Ford. Like he's he's in that mold. Oh hey, Ryan Riddle. Who, uh, oh, hey, look at that. Yeah, yeah Ryan Riddle is the second, uh, second guy on there who uh, some of you may know. Well, Ryan Riddle, I think if you player. compare him to, to what, linebackers? Because if you compare him to edge defenders, then it's James, Kowser, Paris Harrelson, Derek Barnett, Everett Brown. Oh, by uh, default, it's it's just D-line as a whole. So Ryan Yeah, Riddle I think it gives him, um, <clears throat> it does defensive line, like one gap defensive line. Uh, and so, yeah, James Kowser, Ryan Riddle, Derek Barnett, Paris Harrelson. Um, and then rounding out the the draft, you've got Adrian Colbert, defensive back out of Miami, round seven, pick two twenty nine. Um, this is someone who's just super duper fast. Uh, he's probably going to be a gunner on special teams. He plays safety. He ran a four two five at his pro day, which usually players run faster at their pro day than they do at the combine or, or anywhere else. And so, even if you bump that by you know a tenth of a second or more, he probably is like a true four two four three four four guy. But that's still really, really fast. Not yet. Yeah, not so, four. He uh, so his his combine number was four four nine. So he was just shy of four five there. So even if you want to balance it out a little bit, like he's probably a four four dude. Maybe maybe at best high four three. Yeah, it's so it's which is still <clears throat> really good. Obviously, like that's yeah, that's it's, still it's, very it's still fast, really really good. But it's and not it shows up on five. tape. It's it shows up on tape. Like it's it's he is fast, and he is he's someone who actually was at Texas. It's it's concerning, of course, because at Texas, uh, the defense was not very good and we had issues at safety and he still was not able to break in, transferred to Miami uh, and and then got drafted in the seventh round. So I think his his likely fit right now is is someone who is a uh, uh, someone who's going to be a gunner on special teams, although uh, McShay thinks that he was the best pick of the 49ers draft. Yeah, which is just. Uh, which is just strange. Like, even if you're kind of high on the guy and you think he might be a little bit more talented, like to call like pick two twenty nine the best pick of your draft when you had things like you know maybe getting a top five player in this draft at thirty one and uh you know I don't know like maybe three or four others that I would pick well well ahead of that one that come to mind first. So yeah, it was that was strange. Yeah. I don't know. So, David, that that rounds out, I think, what we're going to do and talk about when it comes to the players. But are there any real final takeaways about the draft as a whole? Um, Knowing that we don't do draft grades because those are dumb, we'll figure out how well this draft was in a couple of years. Uh, But just initial impressions about the new regime and John Lynch and and his ability really to to maneuver the draft in his first go round. Yeah, I think that part was great. And I think the, uh, you know, having a clear role for Prague and, and knowing that he's basically, you know, he's got the draft value chart, which we think is valuable and helps him kind of maneuver and, and take advantage of some teams at times that maybe use more of an outdated chart. Um, and I think his influence was definitely known there. I mean, Lynch made that clear uh, in, in some of his uh, pressers after the fact. So I think that element was definitely very good. Uh, the thing that really stuck at me from, from more of a player and roster construction standpoint um, was the focus on getting top end athletes. I mean, you look at, those top picks, basically everything through uh, Kittle, with the exception of old Beathard, um, every single one of those players was a top athlete. I mean, Joe Williams was the worst of them, and he was like six, 65th percentile spark guy. Everybody else was 90 plus. You know, you look at it's Solomon Thomas, 94th percentile. Witherspoon, 94th percentile. Kittle, like 97th percentile. Number one, you know, among tight ends in this class. Um, and while there are no numbers on Reuben Foster based oh yeah. on his tape, he, chances are 
he would have been a really, really high, uh, a really, really good tester. Yeah, we didn't get to see him him at the combine. Obviously, we wouldn't have seen him even if he, you know, didn't do some stupid shit. Um, yeah, but, he was recovering from his uh, his shoulder still. Yeah, I mean, it, I think it's very apparent that he is, uh, you know, again a top end athlete at his position. So I think that focus, and you know, at, at the top too, right? It was what we what we really like to see was that kind of combination of production and athleticism. And I think you see that, especially with the first three picks, you know, uh, after that, you kind of maybe lean a little bit more on athleticism um, when it comes to Kittle and Williams, because didn't have, you know, necessarily great numbers. Production wasn't huge. But um, yeah, I think that focus is is a, a really big shift. And I think that's a big, you know, again, Seattle influence seems to be kind of a model for them in, in terms of the the player archetypes that they're using. Um, and so that's something to, to really monitor. Was it just something in this class? Because. Um, you know, this class happened to have some freaky athletes and, and the board fell that way. Or is this something that really becomes a focus for them at certain positions? So uh, that was something that was was definitely interesting to me. One of the first things that stuck out when looking at the draft as a whole. Yeah, I think for me, it was having to break away from a lot of the things that we've been used to doing, right? We've been used to focusing on South Carolina guys, and we've been used to focusing on basically pre- pre- uh, having a preference for SEC guys and South Carolina guys and and now it's it's really interesting to see what some of the tendencies perhaps with this regime are. One tendency I think we're both behind is drafting athletes. The other is that all of the players that we drafted were Power 5 players, and there seemed to be a Pac-12 focus. Except for Taylor. So we're, Taylor Taylor's uh, yeah. the one outside of that, yeah. Um, and, and so I think overall, it is, it, it's a super interesting way to think, okay, are, are they going to focus on more West Coast prospects? Uh, is that something they're, that they're going to value just because of physical proximity? Um, and, and I do love the focus on athletes. Um, they, they tended to stay away from injured people other than Ruben Foster, which I think was good looking for people that are going to produce right away. And, and I, I think that this perhaps goes without saying, but it, it does seem like the scouting department and the scheme and what the coaches are going to do are aligned. When you look at picks like Akella Witherspoon, when you look at picks like George Kittle, when you look at picks that see that you're like oh yeah that makes sense for the system that makes sense for the system that's good that's what you want to see yeah you don't want to see players where you're like like i think the ultimate example of a non-system player fit would have been drafting someone like a leonard fournette it would have been like are are they really in line are is gm and coach really like are they doing this together or are they just saying i'm gonna pick players and we'll let the coach figure it out because that's what it seemed like in San Francisco uh, when when Balky was at the helm. It was like I'm just going to get these players that I think are good players, and the coach is going to have to figure it the fuck out. Um, and and that doesn't seem to be the case this year. And and I think that's good. I think it's an overall first impression. I think he got a lot of value uh, out of his trades. He absolutely fleeced the Bears. And and overall, it's it's exciting. I think it's an exciting um, first impression for a general manager for the 49ers. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this was something that I tweeted out kind of during the draft and in a sense of, look, we all know that it's going to be a few years before um, we we really know what this draft class was, right? And, you know, what it was like and, and whether we did actually get players that kind of become the foundation of the next good 49ers team, right? We're, we're not going to know that for a while, but certainly based on the information that we have right now, what we we think of of some of these players based on what they did in college again with the athleticism stuff like it certainly is all really positive i think it's important to call out too with with the athleticism stuff because i know some people are like you know we don't care about what they measure at the combine i don't care about percentiles just show me what's on tape man 
And and I think the the thing to call out with uh, with athletes and Zach Whitman tweeted this out a, a while ago at this point, um, who is the kind of guy that maintains three sigma athlete that that comes up with the spark numbers that we use a lot. And and it's really these three things. Not all good athletes are good players. So just because you have a high spark doesn't mean you're going to be a good player. However, very few poor athletes become good players. So if you see somebody that's way down there that just is not an NFL caliber athlete, the odds are stacked very much against him to become a good football player. And then when you look at the great players, right, the guys that really become kind of the standard bears at their position, most of those guys are also great athletes. So anytime, again, that you can kind of marry that top end, just really good athleticism with the production and with the football stuff, right? You just don't want to blindly look at the numbers, but when you can pair those two things together, I think those are the picks that make you feel really good. And I think we got, you know, three, four of those guys in, in this draft class that I think could really be impact players for the 49ers. Last thought, I think, on the draft is is it does seem a little bit, we talked a little bit about what the roster is going to look like and, and how it feels and how it's really going to be two, three years when this team, I think, is competing regularly. And in two, three years, the, the roster and the way that it looks now, these are the picks that you want to see coming into their own. They're coming into year three of their rookie deal. And, and this is where you're going to have maximum value. When you look at the the way that these players line up, you, you can almost see some of these players as a replacement for the players that are on the roster right now. You look at Kittle and, you know, he could be a replacement for check if he's not around in two, three years or for whatever reason. You've got, you know, Taylor and Jeremy Curley. You've got DJ Jones and Earl Mitchell. You've got, you know, lots of players that you're like, you know what, if everything pans out for these players in three years, we could let the players that we're signing right now walk. And have fantastic replacements that are at the tail end of the rookie deal. Maybe we re-sign them after that year of success. And, and you begin to see, you know, kind of the, the roots being laid for the types of players that they want that hopefully sprout into, into great players uh, later on in, in two, three years when this team is ready to contend. Yeah. I mean, again, it's uh, I think it's exciting right now knowing that we have, you know, between um, the fits in between, you know, the athleticism stuff and it just kind of everything that we talked about and, and being able to get value with the trades and, uh, just that first impression I think was really strong. And, uh, it makes you feel better when you hear things from John Lynch. Like I didn't know a fifth year option was a thing. Um, you know, when you, when you hear stuff like that, you're like, shit, I wish you wouldn't have said that. That makes me a little bit worried. Um, but it makes you feel better when it seems again, like they got a clear plan in place. They're, they're doing a good job of, uh, you know, identifying guys that have clear fits within what they want to do. Um, and, and I think it was a very good kind of first big step for this new regime for sure. So if you want to see some of the, uh, some of the film bits that we were talking about, definitely check our Twitter feeds. You can see mine at better rivals, David, where can they see yours? Uh, it's going to be at NFL or excuse me, Newman NFL. That's yeah at NFL. That's, at, that's David NFL. Newman's that's handle. That's me. That's they're putting NFL. up all yep. my stuff there now. Yeah, it's crazy. That's right. Uh, and of course, you heard the call to action a little earlier. It's going to be hashtag Beathead. Uh, no, and, beat hard. And yeah. Oh, beat hard. Beat Sorry. Hard. That's come on now. <laughs> beathead. Beathead's a very beat different heads, thing. Beat hard. <laughs> don't, don't beat heads. Beat hards. Uh, so thanks again for those of you that tuned in to drunk pros- drunk prospecting. Thanks. It's up on YouTube if you want to catch that. And uh, for those of you that are tuning in now. Thanks again, as always. Uh, make sure to leave a review on the iTunes or on Google Play, because we're on Google Play now in case you're one of those Android users. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, thanks again for tuning in. It's been a marathon of a weekend, my friend. A marathon yes, of a yes, weekend. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, but we'll be back uh, 
next week. And as always, go Niners. Hey, I'm Anil Dash, and I'm the host of a new show called Function from the Vox Media Podcast Network and Glitch. This season, we're talking with experts about why our voting machines are so bad and how that might hurt our elections. We'll also talk with an animator to find out how popular dances from the real world end up in video games. And we're going to tackle the biggest question in tech. Why do so many celebrities use screenshots from that Apple Notes app to make their public apologies when they screw up? You can find new episodes of Function every Monday on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And thanks to Microsoft Azure for sponsoring Function.